We just started a study in the book of Colossians. It's this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. And uh, it's a city that we talked, we, we introed it last week, a city that was not extremely well known at the time. Uh, at, at one point, it had its mark in history. It was a boom town, but whenever the Roman highway system got put through, uh, it sort of got bypassed in that. And, uh, and, and it was a less influential city at this point in time that Paul's writing them a letter. But there were people that lived there that he dearly loved. And so he would, he, he, he established a church there. He planted a church and he equipped leaders to take it over. And, uh, and so uh, last week we talked about the history of it and how we got to this point. And we're going to be camped out in Colossians for a while. Paul says some pretty substantial things in the book of Colossians. And uh, if you're going to be following along with us this morning, there should be a Bible right in front of you in the, in the pew rack in front of you or pew rack. These aren't pews, they're chairs, but you know what I mean, it's hard to deprogram myself after all these years. But uh, so in that pouch in front of you, there should be a Bible. We're going to be on page uh, 679. That's the first part of the book of Colossians. So hopefully you can join us in that and follow along with us. Um, so last week, one of the things we camped out on is we saw that Paul starts the letter off with this really passionate prayer and a powerful prayer. And he sets up the letter really well because he lets you see what his heart is. You know, when you hear someone pray out loud, you can hear a lot of their heart in that. Uh, we talked last week about how prayer can be an intimidating thing, especially to pray out loud in, in a group, especially if we feel like there are people in that group that maybe have a relationship with Christ that ours doesn't completely look like theirs, and it can be an intimidating thing. But, but I want to push all that away. I want to squash that, and I want to say that any time we open our mouths back to God as beautiful words come out of our mouths. Anytime we're communicating what's in our heart back to God, no matter how clumsy it may sound to you, the ears of the person saying it, it's beautiful to the heart of God. So we don't want prayer to become a theatrical thing. We want prayer to become a regular, everyday part of our existence. And we can tell, you can tell a lot about someone's heart by how they pray. And what they pray for, what they, what, they, what they pray is important to them. And if you were to read back through the first part of Colossians, what Paul is praying for this church, it's unbelievable. The love he has for them and the things that he wants them to see. The other thing that's really neat is as we tear apart this, this letter, as we dissect it and look at it a little closer and more manageable bits, what we're going to see is that the things Paul's praying for will happen in the hearts of the church of Colossians. He addresses those things throughout the rest of the training in the book and in the letter. So he doesn't just pray for something and expect God to impart it to the people without any instruction. He prays for the things, expects God to impart it to people, and also teaches them and equips them on how to make that a reality in their lives. He teaches them how to point their gaze back to something. Now, when you're going to start a letter like this, you're going to start, uh, uh, you've, got to, you've got to hook your, your reader, right? You've got to try to get your reader to want to read the rest of the letter. And so Paul, coming out of the gate, addresses something we're going to dig into today that is so vital for us to understand. But let's read it first. Colossians 1, we're going to look at verses 15 through 23 today. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Again, if you're using that Bible in front of you, it's page 679. This is the English Standard Version. He is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There's a lot of meat there. There's a lot of things that he's saying. So the problem that existed in the Colossian church was that they were... They, that they are uh, depreciating the person of Jesus. They have, they have depreciated His supremacy. They have taken Jesus off of the throne of their own minds, and they've, they've seen Him as just another entity by which they can get their pathway to God. This entity of Jesus stopped being preeminent, stopped having His supremacy, in their hearts and lives. There's, there's whispers of this that have become uh, yells to, to Paul. Because when things are being whispered about, they're being believed. So Paul wants to address this because they have forgotten the supremacy of Jesus. They have forgotten what his preeminence means. Now, supremacy is defined like this. The state or condition of being superior to all others in authority Power and status. It's a pretty amazing title to be given to yourself, right? But if you look back to what Jesus himself said, see, because I don't want us to just only take Paul's word for it. I want to know that Paul's words are being backed up by Jesus' words. And Jesus, before he ascends at the end of the book of Matthew, says this. Now, if Jesus is saying it, I tend to think he's not exaggerating. I tend to think he's not just adding to the moment, the drama of the moment. What he's saying is truth. And he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus says. God has unleashed the realms of heaven and the power over the earth to his son. And he said that we control this. We are supreme. And so when we forget the supremacy of Jesus, we start to head down a road that leads us to not glorifying God, glorifying Jesus with how we live. Paul catches wind of this in the Colossian church, and that's what he's addressing. He's addressing the fact that they have lost sight of Jesus' supremacy. They have lost sight that he is superior to all others in authority, power, or status. He can only address that as a reminder and a refresher if he knew for sure that there was a church full of people that believed it at one time. This isn't, 
This isn't new information to the church in Colossia. This is a refresher. This is a reminder. See, that's what preaching is. We talked about the purpose of the pulpit last week. The pulpit sort of exists under the assumption that there's some knowledge of what's in this, the people that are hearing what's coming out of this. There's, there's a natural assumption that there are, there are things that are known and understood. There's also a natural assumption from, from any pulpit that says that if you don't understand something that's being said, you'll ask somebody. Maybe not the person speaking, but somebody that's sitting around you or that, that you know and that you trust. Paul's writing this letter with the same kinds of assumptions. He's assuming, he's making that assumption that there, there is and was a foundational understanding that Jesus was king, that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is superior to all others in authority, power, or status. He's basing that belief and that teaching on the fact that Jesus himself said it. So when Jesus ascends, he spends these years teaching and equipping, and then he does the ultimate thing. He redeems us from our sins. He's the Messiah. He dies on a wooden, rugged cross, and his blood is spilled out on our behalf to bring us back into relationship with his Father. He's the pure, spotless sacrifice. He raises himself from the dead, which Paul addresses in this. No other entity has ever been able nor will ever be able to do that. There was only one that could redeem us, and Jesus was it, and he did it. So on his ascension back to heaven to prepare a place for us, he reminds the masses that before... Okay, so there's a whole group of people standing at this mountaintop essentially saying, What now? What now? Okay, you've taught us, you've equipped us, you've saved us, you've redeemed us. Now what? That's sort of what is happening at the moment at the end of Matthew when Jesus ascends up into heaven. So the first thing that he says in that moment is reminds them that what he's about to tell them to do, he has the authority to tell them to do. He reminds them by saying, that all, I have been given authority in all of heaven and all of earth. The full authority of my Father rests upon me, is what he says. Therefore, so based on that authority that I have, go into all the world and repeat this message. Go into all the world and establish this hope in other people's lives. Based on the fact that I am who I say I am, go and teach others and disciple them and grow and establish the church. That's how Jesus starts in Matthew. That's how he starts the command. That's how he ends it. That's how he ends his earthly ministry. By reminding us that he has supremacy. So Paul, when he, recognize, when he establishes a church, he establishes it under that premise. He's establishing it under the premise that Christ has given him the authority to do what he's doing, to establish churches, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry as he talks about to the church in Ephesus. That's what Paul is working under. He gets the church started under that, that you have been, this is what Jesus is 
requiring of us now. He redeemed us. And now he wants the world to know. And the, the mechanism that Jesus himself has chosen to expand this message of good news to the masses is called the church. So go and establish the church. Establish the spirit of the living God living inside human beings and, and establish that as they gather together to be fed, to be encouraged, to be built up and to go. So that's what Paul spends the rest of his life doing. From the time he gets converted to the time he dies, he is establishing churches, establishing leaders, and doing it again and again and again and again. That is his life. So he established the church in Colossia under that. It's important for us to understand that. The foundation of that church was built on the supremacy of Jesus. The only reason that we have the authority to stand up and use God's word is because Jesus has it and he's allowed us to speak it. If you remember, as Jesus is on trial from Pilate and Pilate looks at him and says, do you not know that I have the authority to put you to death? And it's one of the first times Jesus speaks and it's like, oh, this is a slam, like major burn moment. Because Jesus looks up at Pilate and he says, you would have no authority at all unless I gave it to you or my father gave it to you from on high. You would have no authority. You would be nothing unless my father allowed you to be who you are. That's what Jesus says back. Jesus was not afraid of the authority that he had. He was not intimidated by it. He lived out of it. But you see it lived out in gentleness and humility. And Jesus gets aggressive when religious people aren't living out the way God intended them to live out. That's when Jesus uses his harsh words. The rest of the time, Jesus is interacting with society from a gentle standpoint. Not afraid to speak truth. Not afraid to live in the authority that's been given to him by his Father. Not afraid to command the masses to go and, and, re, and live out of this truth. He's not afraid of that. And because he's not afraid of it, when he spends three days equipping Paul in how to be an apostle and why his call has been put on his life, Paul lives from that moment to the day he dies not afraid of the authority of Jesus and not afraid of what might happen in his life because he claims it in his so when Paul catches wind that the church in Colossia has removed Jesus' supremacy from their day-to-day -day living, he stops what he's doing and he addresses it. He can't get there personally because he's in prison. But he has people equipped to be boots on the ground and he knows these people just need to be refreshed on who Jesus is. So that's how he starts this letter. So let's remind ourselves, supremacy, the state or condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, or status. That's a pretty hefty definition, right? Keep that in mind as we tear into this. What happened in the church in Colossia is that Jesus has become a sub-character. Jesus has become not the preeminent character, the preeminent Savior, he has become a sub-character in the life story of these people. A moment that redeemed them. A moment that they talk about. A moment that, yes, I was a mess and Jesus saved me. 
But from that moment to where I'm at today, Jesus is a sub-character in the story of my life. And when that happens, in our testimonies, we have lost sight of the supremacy of Jesus. See, He was preeminent and supreme in our lives to surrender ourselves to, to redeem us from the pit of sin. Because we knew that the cross bought us out of slavery. We knew that. And we gave ourselves over to this amazing life-giving message, the only place where we could get full, lasting, everlasting hope. And that's in the person of Jesus. And we've surrendered our lives to Him. So we preach and we teach based on that assumption. And Paul's doing the same thing. And he's saying, if the story of your life, if the testimony of your life starts by saying that I recognized who I was and I took this gift of salvation, that Jesus died on a cruel cross for me, that, that he raised himself from the dead to provide me with salvation, that he, his father adopted me as son and made me a rightful heir to all the, the same privileges and inheritance of his son. And then he, then he sends me out to the world to give this message. I'm an emissary for him. I am an ambassador for him. Not only that, but he indwells me with his spirit, gives me power and authority to preach this message. And we realize that. And when we tell our stories, we tell our testimony, we recognize the supremacy of Jesus. In that moment, we recognize it. When we tell our stories, that's, that moment is very real. Correct me if I'm wrong, Right? But when we tell our testimony and it's this moment where we understand what Jesus is offering us and we give our lives to him and we accept this free gift of salvation, we are recognizing that in that moment, nothing was more supreme to us than the authority of Jesus. Nothing. Mark that occasion to this morning and ask yourself if Jesus still has that place in your heart right now. Because when Paul catches wind of the church not living out of the supremacy that saved them, he stops and addresses it. That's the purpose of this part of the letter. The state or condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, or status. Let me read this to you one more time. This is the same passage, but this is from the New Living Translation. I find that sometimes different translation people put their different eyes to it and are making this, it makes it a little bit easier to digest if you're not uh, someone who can understand uh, reading as easily. I have trouble with that at times. So I, I, I go to other translations and other versions of scripture at times to read the same passage. And sometimes the imagery jumps out at me differently from other versions. And this one did for me. So Colossians 1, 15 through 23, I'm going to read it to you one more time. This is the New Living Translation. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. 
And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. I don't know about you, but that jumps out at me a little bit more. So let's look at this. Let's, let's look at a couple things here. So from verses 15 to 18, if you're going to follow along here, we're just going to break this down. We're going to see the full picture of Christ's supremacy. The full picture of Christ's supremacy is going to be from verses 15 to 18. So let's look at some of the word pictures that he chooses. Verses 15 to 18, he says that he is, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When God wanted himself to be seen by all humanity, he did that through the person of Jesus. The full picture of his supremacy starts with that he is the image, he is the painting, he is the picture of God. The next thing that Paul says is that he was the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. He was before all things and in him all things hold together. So the first thing is he's the image. The next thing is he's timeless. There's no time frame attached to the person of Jesus. His supremacy has a full picture here, folks. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of a God none of us have seen face to face. But he's also timeless. He has no beginning. He has no end. Only a supreme being can claim those things. But the last thing that Paul describes him as in verse 18 is he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head. The head controls the body, right? In our previous church, there was a a man who who taught Sunday school to kids. He taught the fourth grade class for like 18 years. The kids loved him. His name was Joe. His name is Joe. And uh, Joe, just vibrant, loving guy, just loved the kids, super high energy. And one day, uh, while he was at home, Taking a shower, he had a stroke. And he lost the ability to use his legs. But that stroke also completely altered his mind. And he became grouchy and grumpy, hard to understand. His thoughts were jumbled when he came and talked to you. You had to listen to him for about 10 minutes to understand his thought process and how he got to where he was. And it took an instant for something that controls his body to control his body differently. And whenever this this picture comes into play, that Jesus is the head of the church, it's an instant in our lives when we understand and recognize the supremacy of Jesus, and we give our lives over to Jesus and we accept this, it's now us 
asking Jesus, telling Jesus that you now control how the rest of this works. You control where I go. If you left the grave behind you, so will I. That's what we just sang. The head. He's the head of the church. The church should only move where Jesus is, 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 is telling it to go. The church should be in tune with Jesus. The indwelling of the Spirit inside us tells us where to go and who to be. He is the image of God. He is timeless. He is the head. And then the last thing that Paul says here is that in everything, he has supremacy. He was preeminent. In everything, he has superiority. He existed before with his power. He will exist after with his power, with his authority and with his reign and with his rule. So there's the full picture of Christ's supremacy. And Paul starts there. Paul starts there to say, you have to understand that I'm just not saying this like sentence. Like he, he does make an assumption that there is a belief system in place where the people that are reading and hearing this letter do understand that Jesus is supreme. But he's not making the assumption that when he says that, they know exactly how that's supported, right? So he says, just in case you lost sight of it, just in case you didn't know, I don't want to insult your intelligence and I don't want to assume too much, but here's why Jesus is supreme. Here's why he has supremacy. Because he is the image of the invisible God. Because he has no beginning or end. Because he is the head of the church. Not should be. You notice that's not how Paul says it? He doesn't say, listen folks, you know who Jesus is. He should be the king of your life. He should be the king of this church. That's not what he says. He says he is the head of the church. Period. Now we might choose not to live in that. We might choose not to recognize that. But that doesn't change the fact that he is. So the full scope, that's how he pictures it. This full picture of Christ's supremacy. That's how he starts this off. Then he goes into this, the basis, the basis, the bedrock for his supremacy. The bedrock of it. And the, the two things that he, that he camps out on here that I think are important for us to wrestle with and know today is the first thing is this, in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. See, so Jesus has this full supremacy. He's been given supremacy by his Father. But where is that grounded in? Where is that rooted in? In verse 19, Paul tells us, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in His Son. The fullness of God, not a part of God, not just a piece, not just a, a section, not just a piece of paper that said, if you ever get in trouble, here's your courtesy card. That's not what this is. This is the fullness of God residing in His Son. So Jesus' supremacy is based and founded and foundational in the understanding that the fullness of God, who God is, in all His fullness, and all the things we can't use, we can't come up with English words to describe God, all of those things rest in the person of Jesus. The whole fullness of God Himself rests and resides in the person of Jesus. Jesus. 
And then the next thing that he addresses in verse 20 through 23 is he talks about the reconciling work of Christ. Foundational to who Christ is, foundational to his supremacy, is the fact that he redeemed us. So through him, to reconcile to himself all things by the blood of his cross. So the fullness of God rests in Jesus. And Jesus' work is to reconcile us back to him, to bring us back into right relationship with God. The reconciling work of Jesus. But Paul wants to remind us of something here, and I think it's good for us to chew on this. He wants us to be reminded who we are. The New Living Translation puts it like this. If you remember, this includes you. When he says that, that Christ died to redeem the world, right? He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross, period. This includes you who were once far away from God. That's all of our story, right? All of our story has that moment. Hopefully, if you're here today and you're redeemed by the blood of Jesus and you've accepted that amazing gift, then you were once an enemy of God. Without the reconciling work of Jesus in our lives, we are an enemy. We are at enmity. We are lined up against God. So Paul reminds us of this. This includes you who were once far away from God. Now, there are those of us that could read that and say, well, I've never been extremely far from God. I was raised in the church. I have good Christian family. I'm good to go. And if we were honest, we either have been those people or we know some people that might fall into that category, right? When Paul says this includes you, or in ESV when he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he's meaning you as in all of us. Any one of the readers of this. You were enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. That's New Living Translation. You were alienated and hostile in mind, ESV says, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He has now reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ and his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. The reconciling work of Jesus. The reason that that comes back to his supremacy is because name for me one other entity in the known universe from past, present, or future that's able to do what Jesus did. Redeem us from the mess of our own sin. We can't name one because that one doesn't exist. So the fullness of God resided in Christ and the only entity that could ever redeem us, reconcile us back to God, was in the person of Jesus. And then he closes with this. And this, before he changes thoughts and goes into what we're going to talk about next week. He goes into this. If indeed you 
Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. New Living Translation, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. So Paul spends the first part of this letter, before he gets into anything else, telling the reader, us, about the supremacy, the, the superior to all others in authority, power, or status. He spends the time reminding us of that. And he says to remain in that. Isn't that where the hard work of being redeemed by the blood of Jesus resides? The hard work of being the church, being indwelled with the Spirit, is to remain in that, to remain in that that moment where we've been redeemed. In that moment, we would have done anything. We would have gone anywhere. If in the moment of conversion, in the moment that you bowed your face before God and said, I I need this more than anything. Maybe with tears streaming down your face, you surrendered over to the person of Jesus and you accepted this gift of salvation. In that moment, you would have said, I will go anywhere. I will do anything. I will pack my bags and sell all my belongings and I will go to the farthest reaches of the world for you. That, in that moment, we would have all said that. But we might not say it today. Today, we might look back at God and say, whew, I just don't know if I'm cut out for that. We've got a lot of family here. We've got a lot of stuff going on. I mean, it would, it, would, it would be a big hassle to sell the house. I mean, I'm only three years away or two years away or five years away or six years away from my full retirement. Uh, I, I'm, I'm this close to promotion. I mean, I know, I, listen, God's calling me to this, and I know, but in three years, man, I'm going to be set. I'm going to be able to take that and do that thing for God, and I won't even have to have someone financially support me for it, because if I do this next three years, then, man, I'm good. I'm set. And what Paul reminds us of is if we're starting to barter with God, we've lost sight of His supremacy. If we're starting to make excuses for our behavior, to justify our bad decisions, to live like we're still aliens and strangers, hostile in mind, and make excuses for that, then we've lost sight of the supremacy of Jesus. And when the church has lost sight of the supremacy of Jesus, it ceases to be the church. And it's just a group of people hanging out and singing songs and listening to a speech. And the church, which is us individually, is just people claiming a moral code, being the nice people, doing some nice things. But if we've lost sight of the supremacy of Jesus, we've lost sight of our calling altogether. When God calls us, there's no excuse, it's a good excuse. Remember that moment? You remember that moment whenever you gave your life to Christ? Take yourself back to that moment. Close your eyes if you have to. Picture it. Take yourself back to that. Maybe you were five. Maybe it was three months ago. Maybe it didn't happen yet. But I can't tell you this. In that moment, 
you would have done anything for him. In that moment, you would have gone anywhere. There's not one thing that would have held you back. No relationship, no commitment, no belonging, no decision. In that moment, nothing else mattered but the supremacy of Jesus in your life. Nothing else mattered. There was no obstacle too big that you weren't willing to move that boulder out of your way to pursue Christ. You would have run right through it like a rhinoceros. Nothing was going to stop you. You were going to be with Jesus. That's our story. So the question that Paul asks is a tough question. It's a hard question. It's a harsh reality. It's, the, it's, this, it's this wrestling match that we all have to have, every one of us. That moment when we recognize Christ's supremacy, in my opinion, the, one that, the moment we recognize it at its biggest level, at the level it's meant to be understood, is the moment in which we surrender to Christ. And we say, I need to be redeemed from the mess of my sin, and we receive salvation from our King. That's the moment where supremacy is defined for us, and we know what it means. And we feel small in the sight of our king. We feel small with our face down in front of his feet. And we feel alive like we've never felt before when we feel our king reach down and lift us up and embrace us and say, you are mine now and forevermore you are mine. And where I go, you go. Where you go, I go. And what I say, you say. That moment, it was very real. That moment, the supremacy of Jesus was very real. So Paul's letter to the church in Warrington. Paul's letter to the church in Horsham, Perkesy, Ambler, Roslyn, Willow Grove, Warminster, Hapro. Asks this question. Is that still who Jesus is to you? Is that still who he is? Is Christ still supreme? We need to stop and ask ourselves if we recognize in our day-to-day lives the supremacy of Jesus. That he is on the throne. That our lack of recognizing it doesn't change the fact that he's still there. Our lack of living out of his supremacy doesn't change his supremacy. And someday, every knee on heaven and earth will bow at the name of Jesus. Because it's a beautiful name. It's a beautiful name. It's a powerful name. It's the name of Jesus. God, you sent us your son. You gave him all rule, all authority, all power. You made him supreme, superior above all in authority. That's who he is. And in his name... Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord. I pray that that day is today. 
I pray that by next week, we're not even thinking about what our response to a horrendous earth event here is because we are in your presence. I pray that by the end of this prayer, you come back and you take us and we're in your presence, Lord, that you wouldn't tarry one second longer. But if you do, if you do decide to wait, if you do decide to leave us here on this earth for just a few seconds longer, I pray that in those seconds, whatever brief breaths we have left on this earth are lived in moment of your supremacy, the understanding of your supremacy, that we leave here feeling heavy because of it and wanting nothing else but to obey your King. Because our King is good and our King is loving and our King is gracious and our King is kind, but our King is powerful. Our King controls the winds and the waves. Our King is supreme above all creation. I pray that we remove ourselves from the throne of, our, of the lives that we live. God, and that you convict us deeply to put your Son back on it. I pray that His supremacy reigns supreme in this place that we recognize it and that we live out of it because the name of Jesus is a beautiful name.